0: luther king jr holiday we're remembering the life of a great american this weekend and so um so we're hoping that you are enjoying that as we've already mentioned we know this is a difficult season for for some there's some who've been furloughed now for quite some time uh, because of the uh the government shutdown we're praying all that resolves pretty quickly aren't we <laughs> uh, but but i know today you don't come to remember the life of a great american you don't come today to Uh, even bemoan what's happening with our government you come today to remember the life of jesus right and we remember what the word of god says that of the increase of his government there is no end (laughs) and so we're grateful today to have this time that we can share together as god's people you know the more time you spend with jesus and and you follow him and you you listen to the things that the lord says you, you realize he he's he's fond of saying some things that that at first blush, they sound as if they contradict. They, they sound a little bit like they are, are these contrasting statements, and, and we're not exactly sure what to do with them sometimes. He says things like, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. He says things like, um, he who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Uh, he says, whoever seeks to gain his life and and hold on to his life would be my paraphrase well he loses it but he who loses his life for my sake will find it and so the lord makes these kinds of statements that that cause us to reflect and we realize that they're not contradictory at all that these are statements about how the kingdom of god comes to us and in particular they're focused on our humility whether we will be humble enough to receive the kingdom that he purchased through his blood. And one of his followers, a man by the name of Paul, he makes a a statement that is kind of in the same ballpark, if you will, of these kinds of statements. Paul is a a, a missionary and and his writings make up the bulk of the New Testament. But in in the letter that he wrote to the Romans, Paul makes a statement that I'd like for us to think about today as we study through our series on baptism. If you have a Bible, if you, you can turn to Romans chapter 6. If, if you don't have one, there should be a, a Bible there in front of you in the, in the back of the pew. You probably have one on your phone. There's probably some way that you can get to, to Romans 6. I would invite you to do that because this morning we want to just reflect on these words that we hear from God through his servant Paul, and in particular as we have been now for a couple of weeks, we're thinking about what the Bible has to say about baptism. And I've said it before, we'll we'll probably say it again before we're done here. We're trying to immerse ourselves right now in the scriptures so that we have a deeper understanding of what it means to be immersed in Christ. And so today we'll focus on this passage here uh, from Romans chapter 6. I'll have these verses on the the screen in front of you. You can follow along there or in your Bibles. Here's the word of God from Romans 6. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning? so that grace may increase by no means we died to sin how can we live in it any longer or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into christ jesus were baptized into his death we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the father we too may live a new life If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. This is the word of God. It seems as if, in the first part of of this that we've read, it seems as if Paul is responding to some of his critics. We're reading between the lines here, but it seems as if Paul is responding to those who might be critical of his gospel, the gospel message that he preaches, because it it seems as if some would oppose this this message of Paul's on the basis that, that he talks so much. Paul's always going on about the availability of grace and mercy through Jesus, and so his critics might look back and say, well, you're always talking about forgiveness and grace. That's, that's going to lead people to think they just have a license to sin all the more. if That's all you're ever talking about, Paul. So the argument would be then your gospel message clearly isn't from God. And so his response to that, you can see what he says there at the beginning of, in verse 1. He says, that's not the case at all. He says, are we saying that just because we receive grace, that means we can sin all the more? By no means. Absolutely not, he says. And then he kind of makes this, this shift. He says, we have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? He says, we've moved out of that neighborhood. We don't live there anymore. The gospel doesn't give us license to sin all the more. No, we in fact have died, he says, to sin. And then... He goes directly to baptism to prove his point. And in fact, that that may not be the best way to say what we want to say here, because baptism doesn't simply illustrate, it doesn't simply illustrate the point that Paul's trying to make. I think baptism is the point that Paul is trying to make. Look at what he says here uh, again, in highlighting verses 3 and 4, okay? He's linking baptism with the story of Jesus. He says, we're baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him so that just as Christ was raised, we too might be raised to live a new life. You follow Paul's progression here. He says, number one, we're baptized into his death. And in so doing, we are, number two, we are buried with him. Right there alongside Jesus, we're buried with him. So that, number three, we might be raised to live this new life that we find in Christ. The act of baptism itself, it's so so powerful because it, it tells this story, it reenacts for us the story of Jesus. And that's so fitting because what baptism is, it's an identification with. The story of Jesus now we've said already that baptism is this joyful event because when you you see people responding to the good news it's pretty evident that it's good news right and we talked about the the eunuch that we read about in Acts chapter 8 and how after his baptism he went on his way rejoicing because baptism is a joyful event Then, last week, we looked at what it meant for Israel to go through the water, to be delivered and and saved in that moment of the Exodus, and how that parallels so beautifully what happens then in Acts chapter 2. So, as we said last week, when you go through the water, everything changes. Nothing is the same when you go through the water of baptism, And now today, based on what we've read here in Romans chapter 6, we we'd want to add this piece to our understanding and to our study. In baptism, we just want to kind of summarize it simply. In baptism, that's where the story of Jesus becomes my story. That's where it becomes your story as well. The death and the resurrection of Jesus, Paul says, it made new life possible. It made this transformed kind of life possible for all those who would who would trust in Jesus they can receive that new life and that act of trusting in Jesus it culminates in this moment of baptism now we've been saying all along throughout this series that baptism only has meaning in relation to Jesus just think about it you take Jesus out of the mix if you're not you know baptized for any any reason connected to Jesus well that's just kind of empty hollow religious ritual Jesus gives baptism its meaning. All right So that's why in the New Testament you see places like this like like Paul talks about in Romans 6 What we read about last week in Acts chapter 2 They talk about being baptized in the name of Jesus or being baptized into Christ and that's huge That's really important because the word itself baptized. It just means to immerse it means to dip it means to soak you know pick whichever one of those you like but but to this to this end okay it means to to dip or to immerse in a liquid with the aim of of whatever is being dipped will take on the quality of that which it is dipped into does that make sense so for instance the word is used oftentimes in in ancient greek to describe this act of taking a piece of cloth for instance and dipping it immersing it literally baptizing it into dye so that it would take on the color it would take on the quality the characteristic of that dye another way the word is used a lot of times in in ancient greek you find it uh to refer to leather that is dipped or, or or immersed in some sort of tanning solution okay so again the idea there is that what what you are baptized into is so significant because you take on the qualities and the characteristics of what you are dipped into and so that's why being immersed into christ as paul says in verse three is connected then with being united with christ in verse five go back and look at that in romans chapter six okay if we are immersed into christ in verse three that is equated with being united with christ in verse five right So being baptized into Jesus is identifying with, being immersed into his story. Being buried actually leads to new life. That's the statement Paul makes. That's a little odd to our ears at first. Kind of like the first shall be last, the last shall be first. Okay, in order to find new life, you have to be buried. But that's what it says here. Baptism is identifying with, but also participating in the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. Think about this with me, okay? Uh, Identifying with, that, that one's pretty easy. You see that in the actual act of baptism. This is why this is so significant, why this is so important being immersed into christ when when someone goes down into that water physically it reenacts it retells the story of jesus because there's a going under and there's a coming back up there is a death and and a burial there is a, a dying to self there is an admission okay i can't do this on my own i'm dead in my sins and transgressions so i confess the lordship of jesus over my life there's a death and then there's a, there's a burial, there's a taking down into the water, signifying that, that moment of, of a burial. And then there is a, a bringing back up out of the water, which is a moment of transformation. It's a glorious kind of moment. There's this, this little pantomime, if you will, of the, the, the gospel story that is played out in the actual act of being baptized. And so... F- Looking at it from that way, baptism tells of the death of Jesus until he comes again, kind of like communion does as well. So we're identifying with the story of Jesus because all of that is being played out in our baptism, and that's what's so beautiful and so powerful. But it's not just identification with the story of Jesus. It is active participation in the story as well. So some people believe that baptism is, is merely like an outward expression of something that's already happened on the inside. You've probably heard this before. If you look back at Romans 6, I don't see an indication that that's where Paul is going with this. That Undoubtedly, there is an inward and outward component to baptism, okay? There is something happening outwardly, and there is something happening inwardly, okay? So no, nobody's arguing that. Okay, But as you take a look at it, that there seems to be this really, I think, really important distinction based on Romans 6. And that distinction is this, that baptism doesn't merely symbolize something. That baptism is the moment where something really happens. And that's an important distinction, but I, th- I think, you, you go back and look and tell me, I think based on Romans 6 you can see that. Because it is, it is a moment, not just that, that symbolizes, although there is rich symbolism in baptism, but to say that it merely symbolizes something, I think, doesn't go quite far enough. Because based on what, the way I'm, I'm hearing what Paul says here in Romans chapter 6, it sounds like he's not saying it just symbolizes something, but it's a place where something really, truly happens. And what really, truly happens is we are buried with Christ in this beautiful expression of the gospel story. We're making the story of Jesus our story. And if something really happens in baptism, if we can agree to that, if something really happens, then I think we would do well to ask this. Okay, who is the one doing something? If if something's happening in baptism, the question then is, okay, who's the one doing the, the, the work? And the answer, of course, the answer, of course, is God. God is the one at work there. The the most important person in a baptism is really not the person who's being baptized. (laughs) It's certainly not the person who's administering the baptism. Okay, It's God. Because this is the work of God. God is the one who is actively killing and burying and raising, death, burial, and resurrection. All of that is, is the story of Jesus, but it is the power of God in our lives. And so uh, this is important for our understanding because, because nearly every time baptism is spoken of in the scriptures, the New Testament writers, when they talk about baptism, almost every single time they speak of it in the passive voice, okay? They speak of baptism as, as something that is administered to you. You don't bury yourself at your own funeral, Right? No, it's it's something that is admit something that is done to you And so in much the same way we, we should think of baptism along these lines It is the work of god now god certainly gives us free moral agency in our lives You get to choose I get to choose I can decide what I believe in where i'm going to invest who i'm going to trust You know all of that that decision belongs to you, but in baptism we yield that agency to the power of god and We're saying Lord, I can't do this on my own anymore My efforts at salvation, my efforts at bringing myself, you know, home, I I, I can't do it. And so it's this moment, again, of yielding, humbly receiving, as Jesus says, the kingdom that's offered. Here are just a couple of places that talk about baptism and use that passive voice. Acts 2, we talked about last week, but repent and be baptized, that's the passive voice. Uh, Acts 8, Philip is preaching in Samaria in one of the cities there. It says that when people heard this, and they heard the good news, and they saw the signs and wonders that accompanied his preaching, they were baptized, both men and women. 1 Corinthians 12, for they were baptized, this is interesting, baptized by one spirit. The spirit's involved in that somehow. They were baptized by one spirit into one body. And then in Romans 6, the language that we've already read through, again, passive voice. Even uh, verse 6 of Romans 6, where it talks about being crucified, that's also passive voice. And so Paul further connects baptism with the story of Jesus by referencing the crucifixion. Here's kind of the important part of this, okay? When it comes to the scriptures, I believe verb choice matters. I don't believe it's accidental that God reveals the truth to us in the way that he does. And so the the passive voice teaches us this, that baptism is the work of God. And how unfortunate that in in, in the ways in which baptism is discussed and argued about and point and counterpoint, how unfortunate that, that we lose sight of that sometimes. It is this beautiful expression of the power of God at work. It is something he is doing in us. And so what is happening in us is more than mere symbolism. It is where we are buried with him through baptism into death, as Paul says. There's this baptismal tradition in certain parts of Africa that illustrates this really well. Certain places in Africa, where they're close enough to the, to the coast, when uh, someone decides that they want to, to become a Christian, they want to be baptized, uh, the church gathers there on the shoreline. And uh, the deacons of the church will take, you know, the guy who's, who's being baptized, they'll, they'll take them out into the, into the water... And they'll wait until a a, a wave comes that's you know pretty good size and they'll either you know grab the guy up under the arms or sometimes uh they say they'll grab one one deacon will grab him by the ankles and the other guy gets him by the arms okay and they wait until this wave comes you know about waist high and then whenever they can tell the wave is coming they'll they'll take the guy and they'll say i now baptize you in the name of the father and they push him into the wave as the wave comes crashing down over him and you know he's He's washing up to the shore, and so the deacons trudge up there, and they, they grab him again, and then they go back out, and they wait for another wave, and they say, I now baptize you in the name of the sun. Pfft, you know, same thing. He washes up to the shore, and they trape's back, and they grab him. You know, he's about half drowned by this point. They get him, and they, they go back out. And they do it a third time in the name of the spirit, okay? And that's how these brothers are baptized in certain places in Africa. And if you were watching that, if you were just gathered there on the shore, you didn't have any clue what was going on, right? Your question wouldn't be, "What is that guy doing?" I don't think you'd ask that because he ain't doing nothing. He's trying to not drown, right? Your question would be, "What are they doing to him?" Wouldn't it? Your question would be, "Why are those deacons? What do they have against him?" You know, what are the deacons doing to that guy? You would be asking about why those people are doing what they're doing. And that illustrates for us, I think, in a helpful way, what's happening there. In the act of baptism, if God is the one who's doing something. And what he's doing is bringing about salvation in this beautiful, wonderful, powerful way. Again, it gets back to our humility in receiving the kingdom. In baptism, we're acknowledging, my story isn't working. And we trade up to a better story because according to the word of God apart from Jesus my story is a story of death we're gonna look at one other passage here before we finish it's in the book of Colossians you just turn forward a couple of pages in your Bible to Colossians chapter 2 we'll focus here and then we'll wrap up in him you were also circumcised In the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with a circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. And it goes on from there. Circumcision... um, in the Old Testament, it's important. In the New Testament, it becomes important as well. Uh, and here's the reason why. It marked Israel as the people of God. Okay? So uh, circumcision was the means through which the, the Jewish people would identify themselves with the covenant that God made with Israel. And so here in this passage, Paul says that in this new covenant of Jesus Christ, immersion functions in much the same way. And it's really interesting because this is the only place in the New Testament that equates those two. But it does so in a really powerful way. And I want you to notice the force of what Paul says there in verse 13. I've highlighted certain parts of it. He says, when you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. And, and as in Romans 6, you can see the context, Paul says that this new life is the result of being buried so in order to receive this new life you have to be buried first just like the first shall be last he who humbles himself will be exalted he who exalts himself will be humbled. in order to receive new life you have to be buried first taphophobia is the fear of being buried alive Uh, You probably have taphophobia, you just don't think about it, (laughs) right? Um, In her book, Buried Alive, the author Jan Bonderson tells the following story. In the summer of 1915, Dr. D.K. Briggs of Blackville, South Carolina, was called to tend to a 30-year-old woman named S.C. Dunbar, who had suffered an attack of epilepsy. He arrived and he found no signs of life, so he declared her to be dead. The corpse was put in a wooden coffin, And a funeral was arranged for 11 a.m. the following morning to give Essie's sister, who lived in the neighboring town, the chance to participate. And although the ceremony was a lengthy one with three different preachers taking turns to perform, the sister had still not arrived when Essie's coffin was lowered into its six-foot-deep grave. Essie's sister arrived shortly thereafter, though, and the ministers agreed to dig up the coffin so that she might see Essie one last time. But when the screws were removed... And the coffin lid opened, Essie sat up in her coffin and smiled at her sister. The three ministers fell backward into the grave, <laughs> the shortest one suffering three broken ribs as the other two trampled him in their desperate efforts to get out. The mourners, including Essie's sister, believed that she was a ghost and fled yelling. When they saw that Essie, who had climbed up from the grave, was actually pursuing them, they stampeded into town in a state of complete hysteria. For many years, Essie Dunbar was viewed with suspicion in the neighborhood. There were rumors that she was a zombie who had returned from the dead. In later life, she became a local, popular personality, and it is by no means unlikely that the story of her resurrection from the tomb was somewhat improved upon, as it was told and retold and finally appeared in the newspapers after her second and final death in 1955. That story, uh, as silly and embellished as it likely is, it actually helps us understand what Paul says about baptism, okay? And we'll try to redeem this, okay? It helps us by understanding what Paul says in a way that parallels his teaching in Colossians on baptism, but it also gives us a really important contrast to what Paul says. So here's the parallel. Essie Dunbar's life was never the same after this burial, right? No, her life was never the same. She was always known from this point forward as, as the woman who had been buried and and for better or worse her life was different when she crawled up out of that grave and scared everybody to death if that is the way it went down right and something similar happens in our baptism as we said last week when you pass through the water everything changes nothing is ever the same and so for those of us who've given our lives over to the lord in baptism may it be said that we too like Essie dunbar are never the same That we're always known as people who've gone through the water. We're always known as those people who've been buried in order to find new life. That's what it means to live the baptized life. And that passage that Jacob read as we were around the table from Colossians 3, you just roll forward a little bit. If we've been raised like this, he says, that's baptism. So if we've come up out of that water, Paul says, this is what we do. This is how we live. Set your minds on things above, he says twice. You want to know just a summary what does it mean to live the baptized life that's it right there okay so like S. E. dunbar our lives are never the same when we come up out of that grave when we come come up out of the water because you can't pass through the water without changing so that's the parallel and here's the point of of contrast and it's a pretty stark contrast to what paul says in colossians whereas sc e. dunbar was clearly buried alive Paul says that prior to our baptism, we are dead. Did you catch that? He says prior to our baptism, we're dead in our, our sins and our transgressions. But by identifying with the story of Jesus in baptism, that's how we find new life. And so this, I think, is the most important part for us. And I hope you hear this. You don't need to be baptized because you've done some bad things and God wants to make you better you need to be baptized because apart from Jesus you are dead in your sins and your transgressions and God is the only one who can bring you back to life and that is a huge contrast from SE Dunbar who is buried alive Baptism's not about being buried alive it's about us already being dead and the only way we come to know life is by reenacting the gospel story by identifying with the story of jesus and not just identifying but by participating in it so today the question for us i would just have you consider Are you dead in your sins and in your transgressions? Do you want new life? Do you want the life that the scriptures speak of, that Jesus says is good news and abundant life? If so, something has to die. Something has to be buried. He's made a way possible. if you need to respond to his good news today, I hope that you will. If you need to share something else with us that we can be praying about, we can do that too. We're here to listen, we're here to help. Let's stand together and let's sing.